The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello, and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. In 1960, John Esquaga, general manager of Dick Graves' Nugget Casino in Sparks, bought the casino and completely transformed it. In only two years, the celebrity showroom, first known as the Circus Room, was opened to the public on June 27, 1962 and over the years would pay host to such celebrity icons as Liberace, Peggy Lee, the Osmond Brothers, Robert Goulet, Red Skelton, Debbie Reynolds, and many, many others. Before every performance into the late 1990s, Birth of the Elephant, who would later be joined by Elephants Tina and Angel, opened every act in the circus room. On June 27, 2022, exactly 60 years to the day from the circus room's initial opening, the Sparks Museum hosted an event remembering the showroom, as well as unveiling the framed postcard collection featuring 237 postcards from visiting acts that was once located just outside the showroom, but is now lovingly displayed in the halls of the Sparks Museum. Today on the podcast, I welcome Stephen Esquaga, Corporate Director of Business Development at the Peppermill Casino and former Chief Operating Officer at the Nugget Casino in Sparks. He is also the son of one of Nevada's most prominent businessmen and beloved local icon, John Esquaga. Stephen discusses with me his father's legacy and the legacy of his family, the growth and impact the Nugget Casino has made on the city of Sparks, and many personal stories about interactions with guests and, of course, the ever-famous birth of the elephant. Please welcome to the podcast, Stephen Esquaga. here today, Stephen. Absolutely. Oh. Uh, appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So I start off by asking all of our guests, what is your personal connection to the city of Sparks? And it seems like you've got a pretty big one. <laughs> yeah, it's unique. I, uh, I was actually born in the Reno area, but as a baby, we moved uh, about an hour south of Sparks, actually into Douglas County. But our family business was, uh, my dad was John Esquaga. And uh, sorry, John Esquaga's Nugget, but really was born and raised with, um, again, our family business being in Sparks. So we spent a lot of time. I ended up after uh, going to college and coming back to the area, residing in Washoe County, actually. And I lived in Reno, but spent all of our, my working time in, in Sparks. So have a very close tie to the community, a lot of close memories in the whole evolution of, of the Nugget. And it predated, uh, so the Nuggets started in 1955. I was born sometime after that. <laughs> uh, but really just seeing the evolution of the business and the relationships with the community. Was there a favorite event that you particularly enjoyed that would happen either annually or any other thing growing up that you particularly enjoyed in Sparks? Yeah, you know, we, so we were here a lot, even when, before working age, you know, of course, to see my dad and we'd come into town um, it was much more rural than Douglas County wasn't as connected as it was, as it is today. Um, so we'd be, we'd come in, we'd come in for a lot of shows as kids, uh, obviously see the elephants. Um, the event business really started, um, I would say more like in the mid eighties is Victorian square. The concept was starting to come together. Um, it used to be called B street. And that was, there wasn't a Victorian Square, there wasn't a Victorian Avenue. Um, as the Nugget developed, and at that time there was a Silver Club, we had business, there were other businesses on Victorian Square. Um, there was kind of a thought of, is the is the B Street got redesigned to a certain, there used to be a divider, I'm kind of jumping around. There used to be a divider on B Street. It was almost like a four foot brick wall and there was a decision to be made that, hey, if we were to take that down, kind of event-friendly, some of the space, the curbs, and that, we could maybe do some events. And I think we started with a chili cook-off. But that was really where, I think, from a nugget standpoint, and from, you know, we didn't have the luxury of, let's say, downtown Reno of having a lot of foot traffic. 
going from property to property. So we realized that, you know, events could really be a tool to bring people down to downtown Sparks and, you know, things like the farmer's market. Um, I was, I was an intern actually, when you had brought up the rib cook-off, um, I was an intern for the rib cook-off with yellow pages. Back then there was no internet. We were, and we were cold calling, uh, rib, basically barbecue caters and restaurants trying to pitch them on this idea of the rib cook-off. And we can talk more about that later, but when you were saying, do I have a favorite event? Probably ribs. I, uh, <laughs> just cause it's so connected and it's, I mean, we were in from the ground level. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but there were just a number of different things we did out on Victorian square and, and even in house, um, at the nugget that, that all, all have a special spot with me. So what was it like growing up in the casino industry? You know, it's, it was what I knew. So I don't, I didn't, I never looked at it that different. It was our family business and it. I, you know, I've said this before, we could have easily been a hardware store or a grocery store or dry cleaner. And and so it was just that we were a 24 hour business, 365 days a year and never closed. You know, obviously, um, we had the casino and gaming component, but we really, um, felt like we were very much just a piece of the community. We, people came for a great meal. It, it's, it's a fun business in the sense that, um, we're providing a service for the most part, we're providing a service for people to get away, relax, enjoy, and get away from the day-to-day grind or their commitments or work or, um, and so that end of it was really, I, I've always enjoyed that aspect of it is, um, whether it was an event or an entertainer or even a restaurant offering where people come in, have a good time, kind of forget their problems. And then, you know, then they can return to reality the next day. But, um, but you know, my, as I mentioned, we weren't, we didn't live in Sparks. We actually lived about an hour away. So my dad would commute it every day. Mm. And um, we lived on a ranch down by the Genoa, kind of the foothill in Carson Valley. Yeah. Um, and that's where myself and three siblings, we were all raised. And my mom, you know, stay at home mom and took care of us. And my dad commuted in every day and was pretty, uh, not pretty. He was regimented that he'd be home for dinner every night. Um, and like I said, though, it was a, it was a, it's a unique business cause you don't close. It never ends. It's 24 seven. It's a continual, you know, even with the calendar, you have certain seasons and even more so back then, obviously summer was a busy time. You would kind of fall off into the fall and winter and, uh, yeah. you know, you relied a lot on the local community with your offerings. And then as, as the nugget evolved, um, in demand, you know, we built the business up. Things like conventions and groups and special events, you start taking those valleys out a little bit. And as we added hotel rooms in the second tower, you know, we were really trying to keep that, really create a year-round experience. So depending on what group we had in, um, we were trying to stay busy and keep everybody working throughout the year. Could you tell me a bit about your family's origins and how that ultimately led to the creation of the Nugget? You know, our family... um, both grandparents from both sides of my family came from the Basque country, mm. which is the Pyrenees mountains between France and Spain. And it was, and this is a very common catchment for a lot of the Basque. Um, a lot of them came in as sheep herders. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, the Italian influence, right? Um, a lot of hardworking. You can kind of go down the list, Irish, Italian, the Basque, obviously, Pre all of them, we had the Native American community here mm-hmm. that um, was here from the start. But it really, um, you do see the influence. And I think that work ethic from that generation and that that culture, um, as I mentioned, my grandparents on my dad's side um, settled outside of the Boise area and basically uh, came in as a sheep herder, saved their money um, enough to to buy a piece of, of pretty much raw dirt and ter- farm it and evolve it into a full scale, um, Idaho, you know, potato soybean operation. And it was, it was my dad and his siblings and his parents who really stressed the importance of education, even though they, they didn't have, I don't even know what the equivalent would be. Um, their education was probably 
a seventh, eighth grade level, but they had migrated to the, um, to the United States and took this opportunity. My mom was on a similar track where her parents came from the Basque country to Eureka, Nevada. And again, started as a sheep herder, eventually developed their own business. But my dad, as I mentioned, my grandparents really stressed the importance of education. All four of their of my grandfathers all went off to college. He was, you know, pushing them, two girls and two boys, to go out. Um, when my dad got out of school, he had worked. He had met a gentleman named Dick Graves, who had a number of coffee shops in the Boise area that had gaming involved. And when I, they weren't really casinos. It was, it would be a handful of slot machines and maybe a bingo game or a kino game, and it was all in the immediate. Boise area, well, through legislation, and it happened fairly quick, gaming was outlawed. Um, there was a vote. They decided no more gaming in Idaho, and it was shut down. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying it to a point of, but at that point, uh, Dick Graves basically said, gaming shut in Idaho. We're moving to Nevada. Who wants to go? <laughs> and my dad was, uh, you know, I he'd just gotten out of school. Um, he had, Dick had really liked seeing potential in my dad and my dad said, I'll go with you. And they came down Sparks. They had a nugget in downtown Reno, downtown Sparks, um, Carson city, I think Fallon. They were always talking about trying to get Yarrington going. And for some reason they never got Yarrington going. <laughs> but, um, but it basically Dick, uh, kind of made my dad his right hand man. And, and that was in 1955. Um, they started downtown Sparks, actually across the street from the current Nugget location now, and it was a little. It was a storefront. Um, it'd be more like almost a Denny's, right? It'd be like a coffee shop. Um, I can't remember how many games, but uh, it was like fifteen slot machines, and and then a few years into that, they were doing well. And the, and the joke, I'm kind of jumping around, but my dad often brought up that you know when they came into town. Gaming was, Reno was really, at that point, Reno was more of the gaming destination than Las Vegas. And you had a lot of the main players in Reno, Bill Hara and uh, the Harold's family with Harold's Club, uh, they were, uh, Pappy Smith, and these real larger-than-life characters, uh, Charlie Mapes. And, and I think they really looked at, um, they looked at my dad and, and uh, Dick Graves coming in as, the joke was there's about the over under was probably six months on if they were going to make it or not. Oh. And that they just, they weren't in downtown Reno. They had no foot traffic. They're out in sparks. Um, the railroad was pulling out of, out of sparks. It was leaving. So that was really kind of a turning point, I think for, for sparks as well. Um, but it was very early into that relationship that Dick decided to retire. And my dad was in his, I think, uh, turning 30, very, you know, young to be getting into the business on his own. And, and Dick basically said, you know, John, would you want to buy the nugget? And, uh, but just to show you how times have changed, uh, you know, it was just a different time. You didn't go, my dad couldn't go to the bank and get financing for something. I, Dick basically, it was a handshake deal kind of written out. I know they put it to paper just to make it official and legal, but um, he sold my dad the nugget for, it was $3 million plus something. In fact, that, I mean, that's a lot of money now. Yeah. But I think he had confidence in my dad that he could do it. And the payment, the loan structure back, uh, my dad had Dick paid off in, I think, five or six years. And that was really, and, and really that was the cattle. That, that started things. Um, moving the business across the street, um, you know, as the as the railroad pulled out, there was a lot of um, abandoned properties, and you know, my dad made an effort not so much to lock anybody out, but to, to assure that we've got parking for the locals. You could grow, um, and really, and that's kind of what catapulted the operation uh, in downtown Sparks, and and really, it was. You know, no looking back at that point. I, you know, my my dad often, but those were the days where 
you know, is is GM where he started? You might have been if your front if your uh, short line cook didn't show up, you were cooking breakfast in the back, or you were seating people, and a lot of hard work. Um, I know he and my mom at that time. Again, it was predated having kids, but he lived a few blocks away on Spraja, which is kind of off a kind of near uh, like Pyramid and Audi that area. Uh, yeah. But you know, it'd, it'd be a full day of work. Come home for dinner, take a nap, and then go back in. And like I said, it's a twenty-four hour business. So yeah. at least until you're getting that traction, where you've got, uh, you know, you're building your employee team and all the people that help make the nugget work through the years. But but that was really the start of it. But again, back to your question with the that was the early immigrants of a lot of Italian families, a lot of Basque names, and a lot of connections to that rural and ag community too that Reno Sparks was. It's not so much now. It's urbanized quite a bit. But, sure. But um, that were that was the history and the roots. And a lot of that business is what really supported the Nugget. A lot of the ranchers, a lot of the northern Nevada community in that. It seems like that this was a perfect collision of events that the, the Nugget and your father struck while the iron was hot, so to speak, in terms of the city changing its branding image from a railroad town to the fact that there really was no large casino presence in this area. So I think that that kind of created the perfect opportunity for this casino to grow. Would you agree? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know how much of it was truly intentional. Yeah. I think, um, I do think certain things align. Yeah. I think there was a lot of great um, synergy and partnerships city government and the nugget and a lot of the infrastructure and working with partners on everything from I-80, you know, and the federal highway department and NDOT getting off ramps. And so there's a lot of things that have to come together. A lot of that, you know, even um, in talking to my dad, I often remember him saying, you know, when people would ask, you know, did you envision you were going to have the two towers or this? And, and his whole point was, you know, really, from the day they opened, you were they were just trying to stay open for the next week and cover payroll, you know. And I don't think they had a master plan. I think it was work hard. He's always loved the business. He he loved the whole people side of it. He loved the employees, um, loved the guests. I think you know. I don't think he was never really there, just motivated financially. It was. I mean, obviously, you want to be financially. You got to be healthy. You've got to be able to pay everybody and pay your bills and put some aside. But he was never motivated by that. It was he. I think he really loved um, the whole sport of it, of you know, running this operation and seeing people enjoy themselves. And then as that evolved, and, and to your point, Sparks was kind of a perfect for somebody starting in. It was almost like a blank canvas to a certain degree. Um, there were shut businesses, and and then I think that really spurred development around it and even into this it's kind of a continuum in the sense that even though we're no longer there it's like okay it moves on and you have the development around it and different investment uh in downtown sparks and the area and it's it was a I, I think it was a key piece to spurring some of the development and also the community was great for the development of the nugget well key also in the extent that there's so much entertainment was introduced to this area that I think otherwise wouldn't have been um, from the celebrity showroom to now what has extended into yeah. the outdoor amphitheater. Can you speak a little bit to um, the entertainment that came through some of the favorite acts that you had seen or witnessed or sure. any memories that you have of that? Yeah. It, well, and it was just a real special time, I think in um, for the whole industry back as I was saying, is is the is the nugget really kind of established itself, and it was it did make it past the six month mark that everybody was betting against them. <laughs> um, is they were getting established, you know, there were some real uh, you know pioneers in the industry. Bill Hara set the bar, I you know, and I'll use his him as really one of the primary examples of uh, Hara's brought entertainment into the area. And, it was gold standard. It, and, and again, it, you have to almost put your hat on back in those days, late 50s, early 60s. People were coming to Reno uh, for the best entertainment 
finest dining. Um, these, it was very common back then. It was two shows a night. Entertainers would come in two week runs, two shows a night. It would be a dinner show and then a late cocktail show. You start about 11 o'clock at night. We go over the midnight hour and that was on a Tuesday night, right? Or a Wednesday. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I'm in bed by then, you know, <laughs> yeah, but I, but that was a real special era. And so when the nugget was getting more competitive, they built this, it's called the circus room back then. Yes. And uh, really started to get in the game of basically competing with the Bill Harris of the world and bringing this, you know, world-class entertainment to Sparks, Nevada. And uh, it was interesting, you know, I often pass the story on, and I know we did a recent anniversary celebration of the, for the Sparks Museum with, with the circus room, and it was a great, you know, kind of walk down memory lane, but um, my dad has often commented that, you know, when they opened this, the showroom, the circus room, they had no idea what they were doing. He goes, we didn't know how to turn the light on, right? But they built this showroom, and they had their first show was called International Follies, and I think they thought it sounded good. It sounded, you know, <laughs> but I, again, I, I think it goes back to hard work. They're going to figure it out. Um, but they did. They started picking off some key entertainers. And back then, if you played for one, you didn't play for the other. So if you were with Bill Hara, you didn't play the Nugget. If you played the Nugget, you didn't play with, for Bill Hara. And you kind of had camps. Um, but it was back then it was, like I said, two, two week runs. And it might be Liberace, uh, you know, obviously it was the Rat Pack era. The Rat Pack was more at the lake, Las Vegas, and some with Bill Hara. But, um, uh, and, and that was one of the dedications with the Sparks Museum was our basically our entertainer postcard um, kind of wall mural. Yes. Um, that really shows you through the years all the entertainers. And they were big. I mean, it was it's hard to put in perspective now, especially for, you know, a younger generation where the names don't mean as much, but it'd be the equivalent to today's current names coming through Reno. Um, but yeah, as a kid, it was a big deal. We'd get to go to a dinner show. Um, and you know, I, my, it's funny cause I don't think my dad was real enamored with, uh, the entertainment side in the sense of, I, I think he, he came from ranching and farming and I think he had a hard time getting his head around that. Wait, <laughs> They work one hour a night or, you know, yeah. two hour, you know, an hour and a half show and then one later and they get paid what, you know, yeah. but, um, but he also realized the value that this is the marketing hook. This is what is going to bring people to the area and enjoy um, the entertainment was one of the selling points of the industry in the area. But a lot of great names, a lot of, um, you know, it's funny, even my kids now um, will ask me like, dad, did they'll hear an old, you know, did Johnny Cash play the Nugget? And it's like, yeah, I actually played the Nugget. Or did Tony Bennett play the Nugget? And it's like, yeah, Tony Bennett played, you know. And, um, but, I mean, really, the the library of entertainers was impressive. And a lot of them came with different stories. A lot of them, especially back in the era when they're staying for two weeks, two shows a night, you, you create relationships, everything from the employees with the entertainer, um, Back in those days when we were competing with the Harris of the world, we had an entertainer house. So we had an entertainer, we had a home out at Hidden Valley that, that, so when the entertainer came for the two weeks, they could choose to stay in the hotel or they would, we would, you know, drive them or they would have a, we would give them a car to use it. They would live out in this house off Hidden Valley golf course. Oh, wow. It was kind of a big deal back in the seventies and, you know, sixties, seventies, eighties, um, had a pool, you know all the whatever they needed, food. and Bill Hare had the same thing. He had something in Reno for his entertainers. So his mm -hmm. star, you know, it was kind of a, you know, you'd be competing that way. Um, and then a lot of that started changing, I would say, probably like into the mid-80s. Some of the entertainers were much more, um, you didn't need to do two, they wouldn't do two weeks or they didn't do two shows a night. Started seeing a different model where, Maybe they would play an arena or a fairgrounds. And and so you really see it shift where um, some of it's come back. In Vegas, you're starting to see residencies again yeah. where they're doing maybe five or six nights. And it's kind of the old school, okay, we'll just park and we'll play. But um, 
that was a real special time. And it was probably about a 20 year run. Um, and again, it was much more exclusive to Reno and Las Vegas. And then over time, I mean, if you think about it, it was all for the entertainment dollar, right? Like mm -hmm. there was no Netflix. There yep. wasn't, there wasn't, uh, you know, even the sports leagues and the streaming and the whatever move, you know, all the different, you had movies, but not, there were, so, there's so many other ways to spend your entertainment dollar now. Yeah. Um, but back then in, like I was saying, you know, it could be a Tuesday night, 11 o'clock. It was a sold out show. People were dressed up, you know, it was coat and tie and it was just a, a real different era, you know, and it was very common when the show would end, it, whether it was a, Liberace or Red Skelton or any, they'd go out and either have a drink at the bar with all the guests or, and just mill And it was just a different time. You don't, it's rare to see that now. Yeah. You know, they're usually on the bus and they're out off to the next town. And, but there was a real intimate relationship um, that way. And uh, a lot of fun, a lot of good memories. Um, we, I don't think my dad was, ever, like I said, I think he had a handful of the entertainers that he felt, personal connection to red skeleton was one that um there was a true friendship there um lou rawls is a singer i don't know if you're familiar with lou rawls but i'm not back no. in the 70s er, actually 60s 70s but just a real gen just a lot of really some nice people that came through and were a key part of the nuggets kind of success in the whole entertainment world and i think that that also speaks deeply to the overall atmosphere at the nugget, because I can't tell you the amount of people that I have spoken to and even people who were present at the event that we had, the postcard unveiling event slash 60th anniversary celebration of the circus room. Um, the people that would come up and talk about your father just wandering around the, the casino floor and speaking to them uh, walking up to them at one of the restaurants. Uh, we had Pat, Patty Caffarata uh -huh. on the podcast, and she told a story about how your dad, she had a question about uh, an event that happened, and he took her right up to his office and showed her exactly the photo that she was looking for and remembered who she was. So there's almost that personal touch that I feel isn't present anymore in really any regard, entertainment or otherwise. And so can you speak to that and what, responses have you gotten from the public of people's memories of your father yeah no it really and uh as time goes on it uh and i I, th I think i've always had an appreciation for it but more so as you know you move away from it but you know what was built was very special uh and not just you know also to give recognition i know my dad would feel this way not just even with my dad and yes he he was one of the founders and one of the catalysts but he would be the first also to say the thousands of people that whether they were college kids just working for a three-year or a summer run for us or a 40-year employee that we had employees that started at entry levels that ended up as executives of overseeing a department um, that it was truly a, a model of what teamwork and in the truest sense and I don't mean to get corny about it that okay but it was it was family and it was, he knew there was that connection. And I think what it really came down to, what it boils down is he truly cared. He, he loved the employees. He loved the guests. So he knew every, he knew this employee's kid was going to college or this one was, he also, it, the shoe was on the other foot at times. They would find out that it, this is kind of embarrassing, but an employee's child might be considering dropping out of school. Okay. I want him in my office <laughs> three o'clock and, and it's like oh dad don't you know <laughs> but he just he it was a family and and everybody knew one another and like all families right there's some dysfunctions too like oh it's it's and it's not always all roses it's there's some tough decisions to be made but um but he loved it and i i do think it gave that look we we were not the the newest shiniest we didn't have the the most financial backing especially as the casino industry started going more corporate wall street companies we were standalone we were a family-run operation but i think people also felt the authenticity in that i mean you still need to give a great product but um my dad always had a saying of you know 
get down and manage with your eyes, meaning get out of your office. You can only look at so many spreadsheets and Excel reports, and you can analyze all day long. But at some point, yeah, you need to be down on the floor and with with your customers and with your employees. And it, it's a it's a to your point of it. I see it in flashes in certain businesses, or I'll see it may be in something totally outside of gaming, but I'll see a certain business. It could be something totally unrelated to tourism or hospitality and think, okay, they got it, right? <laughs> and, and we've all had that experience. There's certain, yeah. I don't care if it's a landscaper or dry cleaner or whatever, but you just realize like, okay, they've, they're they on it. And uh, But I think it, it's a real compliment when I hear that because it's it, it was, it was, there was no just phone it in. He loved it. And, and I think it, I really do think it was, um, felt by the employees who then carried it forward. And the, and I think the guests felt that, that, um, there was a real sense of comfortableness. And like I said, we weren't the fanciest, but we didn't really try to be either. We knew that that's not, you know, we're not, we, I think we had a certain expectation and a certain level of quality that we always want to maintain, but, um, we were there for everybody in, um, often, you know, the years I know I keep you know, there were a lot of, uh, uh, what's the word, I'm philosophies that have carried through for my dad, but he often would comment like, hey, we are no different than Safeways, right? Some people are going to come in for a gallon of milk. Some people are going to come in with a full shopping cart. And, it, and it's so true at the Nugget. There were people that would come in, maybe they played in the casino, stayed in a suite, bought show tickets, whatever, or we also had a person that might come in for a piece of apple pie every day and a cup of coffee because they just like the social. So it really, uh, and it makes it, it make it takes all of them, right? It takes all of yeah. them to make your business. And um, I thought it was a great way of looking at it that way. I'd be remiss if I did not bring up our four-legged entertainers, Bertha and of course, Tina and Angel afterwards. I have had so many people come on this podcast and reminisce about that being their favorite personal memory yeah. from the past. Um, can you tell us who Bertha exactly was and maybe share some of your favorite memories? Sure. And I, you know, I almost have to go back and look at like notes of what my, the exact way that Bertha ended up here. <laughs> I don't know how, and you know, I'm going to digress a little bit off of Bertha, but, um, when Dick Gray, and really I give credit to Dick and my dad, but there's a very, uh, and Dick, I think I think my dad really fed off of and learned a lot from Dick, but he was a promoter first and foremost. And mm -hmm. I mean that in a good way, but always coming up with ideas and try this and uh, that didn't work. And, you know, and, and part of it, that's very true in, uh, in the gaming industry, right? It's gotten much more sophisticated and, a little less personal too, but I'm, you know, now different tracking systems and it's much more like you get on some of the corporate levels. It's, it's, it's all, you know, it's all the points and everything. But back then it was a little bit of carny, probably a little yeah. bit of, you know, and, and that's where, again, I think we saw the value of really quality food and restaurant operations was a hook, but also games and different promotions. And they always had, crazy ideas that they were trying and like, and I, I don't know how they came up with bringing an elephant to Sparks, Nevada, <laughs> but they found Bertha. And again, so it's hard, some of this is hard to piece together when you think that there was no internet. Yeah. I, I think it was very common that when the, during going into winter circuses would break down traveling circuses mm -hmm. and they would usually winter in for whatever reason they would winter in Florida and I want to say one of the headquarters was out of like Baraboo, Wisconsin or something like that. And there was an ad and I don't know if it was in a newspaper or how Dick came across it, but for a baby elephant and I don't, I don't even think it had a name then. And they, I think they got thought, Hey, how great would that be if we had a mascot? It was an elephant. We would try, I mean, <laughs> to think, I don't know, but and then to go through with like, okay, we're gonna go get it, yeah. And that was a whole other story of how they transported Bertha over. It wasn't back, you know, but it was truly one of the, you know, fondest, probably one of the greatest marketing and um, 
you know, she was so beloved by the community. She was such a figure for the nugget and such a differentiator um, that to have this elephant in Sparks, Nevada, they built the elephant palace um, out in our west lot with the pool. And we, uh, you know, to have an elephant, you have to have an elephant trainer and all the care and all of that. And through the years, and then so she became the opener for all the entertainers going on. And so you'd see Bertha, the amazing elephant. And then she got a sidekick, uh, Tina. <laughs> and uh, and it really was quite a show. And it really, you know, it was a differentiator. It it was another thing that really catapulted Sparks. You know, it was um, all the, gosh, I just drew a, uh, what the late night show was, it was pre-Johnny Carson, just drew a blank. Um, but, you know, to be basically being broadcast out to the country with Bertha the Amazing Elephant, you can catch her in Sparks, Nevada. It, it you know, and all the all the local aspects, of, you know, Bertha would get her library card. So that would be <laughs> the big promotion with the school district or the Harlem Globetrotters would come to town. Bertha would be in her red, white, and blue and shooting hoops with the with the Harlem Globetrotters out <laughs> and, and all these different apps and a lot of um, obviously just a lot of goodwill in the community, but she was iconic. Um, it was really, you know, I, and I think it also, I think it really put it on the map with a lot of entertainment. Who has an elephant open for him? Yeah. You know, and, uh, but it was a lot of fun and there's a lot of cute stories tied to the elephants. I mean, I know uh, one that happened was we had a, I believe one of the first, elephant trainers, uh, was, a was, a I think he was Hungarian. Um, last name I believe was Smaha. I can't remember his first name, but, uh, they had some type of falling out. I don't know. It was oh. Dick and my dad and it was like Yenha Smaha or something, but he basically quit on site and left. Well, now you don't have a, and he did everything in Hungarian. Oh he trained the elephant gosh. in Hungarian. So, <laughs> And you don't just go pick up the yellow pages and find an elephant trainer. So, you know, it was these funny things that would happen where they obviously made it. And the next time they realized, you next trainer we had, we had to probably train her in English so we know what we're doing. But, um, but, but really unique, kind of going more personal to the animal itself. Uh, Bertha was, there was just a real calming sense of, uh, there, there was a real soul with that animal that was, you could just feel. And, um, you know, we were, I don't want to say we were raised with her in the sense that we weren't around her every day at all, but we were around her quite a bit and it was a big deal to come when we'd come to Reno, we get to go see Bertha in Angel and, um, and really even watching her through the years and all the public events. And she just had a certain presence and a calmness that was really, really unique. Um, you know, we're all pet lovers, right? And yeah. Love our dogs and cats. But uh, Bertha was, you know, and you hear about the intelligence of elephants or dolphins or, you know, there's a handful of these. But she had something that was just, it was a different level and very calm. And, uh, you know, we had a couple stories where, let's say crowds would, uh, you know, at times we'd have to barricade around her so people weren't crushing in on her, mm. you know, just to, for safety, right? Public safety. And we had a few events where the barricades would get breached, right? People would, they felt comfortable with her. They'd, so you'd have all these throng of people up against her. And I would just, I swear you could just see in her eyes. She was totally good. Like, <laughs> nope, got to watch where I'm stepping. You got to be careful. Um, when we brought, uh, we had Angel for years and and on, there was a point with Angel, there were a couple, again, you defer to your trainer and those that really know the animal, but he was seeing some behavioral issues with, with uh, I'm sorry, did I say Angel? I meant mm -hmm. Tina. Mm -hmm. There were some behavioral issues with Tina that he was concerned with that, you know, just, there's still wild animals, right? And you have to be careful. And, and so really the decision was made, we're going to, we're going to donate Tina to an elephant reserve um, and let her not be so much with the public in, in that end, but we brought in Angel as kind of the little sidekick uh, replacement. And Angel really bond animals are very, so you never, apparently elephants, you do not, they're better, they need a, another elephant to be around. Mm. 
but Angel was her first road trip. We were going to San Jose State for the UNR San Jose State game, and that was going to be, you know, Reno's representation was Bertha and Angel were going to be there at the game, and they come out on the field. And they're in, you know, that was I don't even recall what they were part of the perform. It was like a pre-show, and Angel just took. A, she was still like a young like a kid yeah and started taking off running out onto the football field oh. and uh and bertha who i mean is a full-grown you know pachyderm basically ran next to her out on the football it was looked like <gasps> a putting green and then you've got an elephant stamping out there right but uh i mean i think everybody was a little scared like okay do we have a stampeding elephant but it was just bertha bringing her back in like settle down oh um but but she just a really really special you know when and Again, not to be a downer now on this, but when when uh, Bertha did pass away, it was really, I mean, you just all generations, you know, we, we would do public viewings of Bertha getting her bath. Like there would be public time. People would come out and watch Bertha get bathed. And we'd have people, you know, scrub brushes, and they're on Bertha bathing her in soap and Tina too, or in Angel. Um, and she would always, if it was hot out, she'd go, they'd give her a command. She'd spray the crowd and it was, but you would see generations. You would see three, four generations of families, grandparents with down to their grandkids and great grandkids to see them being taken care of. But no, but when we, when, when Bertha ultimately passed away, it was, I mean, there were a lot of tears shed, um, from everybody and just a real special what a special chapter of the Nugget history and, and really for the whole community of Sparks too. And, you know, we often would joke, even the businesses out on Victorian, she would walk, you know, they would walk her from the Elephant Palace down Victorian Square and get ready for the show. And she would get like her nails done. They would get her <laughs> painted up and made up in her headdress. So there would be like kind of a prep time, but they would bring her down Victorian Square. And if you weren't from here, you know, and you're sitting in a bar in Victorian Square and looking out and you've got an elephant walking down the street, <laughs> there's a little bit of a disconnect. Yeah. But, but, um, but no, they were, that was a real special, special piece of the nugget history in the city of Sparks. I think that that speaks so well, additionally to, like you said, the level of comfort, the friendliness, the community, the fact that you can have something as spectacular as a pachyderm or several pachyderms yeah. in an area and yet still have that be a opportunity for community gathering, not yeah. just tourism. Yeah. I think that that's so special and speaks so much to the atmosphere that your dad and all the people that worked around your dad helped to create. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It, it was, it was, and it was kind of, you know, again, dream big and go for it and got to, you know, and, and it also, uh, there's an evolution and you see how times change too. I mean, when, when Bertha passed, we had a very candid discussion amongst ourselves that, you know, it's an era that's probably gone. Mm -hmm. The, the day of bringing a baby elephant across state lines from Baraboo, Wisconsin, like in the back of a tree, I mean, how they got it here. And um, those days are done. Now, if you were to have an elephant, the, the red tape and process, and rightfully so, right. People were probably, there's a lot of bad actors in the wild animal world, but um, we realize that, you know, it's probably an end of an era that um, we, we shortly discussed, do we bring in a replacement in? We had Angel. We knew that we either needed to find a replacement to a company to comfort with Angel or, so we've donated Angel, we donated Angel to the um, Fort Worth, they have an elephant habitat mm. as part of their Fort Worth Zoo. They have an elephant breeding program. And so we made a decision that this is kind of the end of that chapter. Um, but it was special. It really wasn't it. Um, yeah, I give a boy the from a promotional side. Uh, and like, you know, it was everything from national and international exposure to uh, we might have Bertha show up at somebody's birthday party <laughs> in their backyard, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but she would, you know, to your point, the behavior side, too. It wasn't uncommon if you were. My dad would go see them on work day, go back, and when you went into the elephant barn, there was hay bales, um, boxes of produce that we would obviously, instead of going to the restaurant, 
bananas, apples, different things, and they had different favorites that they liked. But my dad would often put like a couple bananas in his pocket, in his jacket pocket. Um, and he and Bertha always knew that okay, she's seeing my dad. He's gonna come and give her a treat. <laughs> but it could be that night backstage, you know, before she goes on. And if my dad was there, that the trunk would be going feeling for his pocket because <laughs> she knew that okay, there's probably a banana in there, you know. But <laughs> but uh, but really uh, smart animals and just a, and and the crew that took care of them were really special. I know. In the celebration with the museum, uh, Karen, one of the, uh, we call them elephant girls, but one of the show girls that would always be part of the show um, spoke. And there was a real love for, if you're going to be working around that, obviously, but between the trainers and everybody giving care and uh, to, to Bertha and Angel and Tina, were, that was another, you talk about a unique skill set. Yeah. You know, and a real passion and, and love for what they were doing, but very special. Wow. Yeah. So th- just to wrap this up, of course, thank you so much for being oh, so generous you. with your time and talking about your family. But what happened to you? What was the trajectory of your career and what are you up to now? Uh, you know, so I stayed, we sold the Nugget in 2013. Mm-hmm. I had, um, when I came back from school, I joined the family business as well. And not really intentionally ever sh- thinking, I don't know, didn't really plan on it. But it was one of those things that once you started, you're going. And uh, so, yeah, I was with the family business for probably close to like 25 years and really kind of worked a number of different aspects. Um, special events, marketing, worked in the food and hotel side as well. Um, and then uh, a lot of years doing all of that in operations. And when we did ultimately sell, obviously we wanted to stay in the area. And, uh, I ended up joining the Peppermill team who, while we were competitors, you still know one another. And, oh yeah. Um, you know, your peers and it's been a great opportunity, great fit. I've been able to jump on their team and uh, we have Western village here in sparks, um, the Peppermill. And then we have three properties in Wendover, which mm-hmm. is on the Utah line uh, where I 80 runs through on the way to salt Lake. Yeah. Um, we have the original pepper Peppermill coffee shop in Las Vegas. So it was, modeled off of the original pepper mill on Virginia street. But, um, it's been a great fit. It's kept, it's kind of allowed me to stay in the industry. I know, um, obviously times have changed. We, you know, I've pitched them on bringing an elephant on board, but they just haven't gone for it yet. No, yeah. But no, it's, uh, it's a family run business, which is very, it's what I'm comfortable in. And, uh, very similar to a lot of the very similar philosophy of how my dad ran the place and, uh, I can relate very well to it. So it's been a, it's been a nice transition. That's amazing. Now, just to close out, I'm going to ask you what I ask all of our guests, which are the big three questions. So our first question is, what sparks you about Sparks? What makes it an interesting place to live, work, or visit? You know, I, I, I love Sparks just from, there definitely is a, a great family feel. Um, and it's, yeah, it's hard to pinpoint really any one thing. I, I also really, what sparks me about it, I think, is just, I think a lot of the improvement, it's been fun watching it evolve in everything from the marina to, I mean, you look out even at Red Hawk and Wingfield Springs, and it's it's impressive. It's a, it's a great, and, you know, you've got the, you've I love the old neighborhood, and I love seeing, you know, my wife and I, especially summertime, we'll go just sometimes in the evening for a drive and it's like let's run through sparks and grab an ice cream cone at scoopers and go through <laughs> the old neighborhoods and it's like you know you just see the pride of ownership and people taking care of their house it's it's great it still feels very kind of americana and uh it's got a re- really great feel that way oh absolutely yeah now you were very generous at sharing so many personal memories but the second question is do you have a particular favorite that perhaps you may not have shared already personal memory or moment in sparks history that stands out to you that you'd like to share on the podcast yeah um you know actually the i love the fact that it um the entertainer poster ended up with the with the sparks museum mm-hmm. I, I would have been ashamed and i i'm really i was so pleased to hear that that's where it ended up and kudos to those at the nugget currently and those that intercepted it and got yeah. it to because I just think that's really a 
snapshot of a very, very special era um, for both the Nugget and for the city of Spark. So I'm so thrilled that that's there. Yes. Um, that would probably have been my top pick. Um, oh, my gosh. You know, that's so great. You know, I love the fact, um, I know there was a lot of work and, um, well, Councilwoman and Senator, too, but Julia Ratty, I know, is very involved. Number, I almost hate naming anybody because I know that there were so many people involved in getting Last yeah. Chance Joe put over at the museum. But um, that's another, that, that's a huge one. Um, but yeah, that would, uh, those would be my two that I think were, you know, iconic for the, for both, both sides. Absolutely. Must be so gratifying to yeah. see that, that, that history matters. Yeah. And speaking of history, since we are a museum, we are constantly looking for new materials, items, and stories to add to our archive. And we believe that every story is worth preserving. So with that in mind, is there an item that either you own or that you're aware of that you believe is museum worthy? And maybe even for the Sparks Museum. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to think about it. Um, obviously, like old nugget slot machines, I, I think mm. we, and I know that we, um, there are some old, Bertha memorabilia with the museum now, but, um, and some of those things aren't sized right to where they just fit in anywhere, but um, something like that could be, you know, worth looking at if we could track it down. Absolutely, especially yeah. since, you know, the museum is nestled almost in the shadow of those towers. Right. <laughs> it's an important part of this region's history. Yeah. And thank you so much for being here today on the podcast to share that history. No, thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Sparks Museum Podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own Antspace Coworking Entrepreneurial Hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time.